Balancing Death Kirk is a weekly Keyforge podcast focused on competitive play. The podcast is hosted by Kira Mode and Kodamarin. The show is here for listeners to gain a better understanding of how to evaluate decks, how to evaluate their own board position, and how to anticipate opponents' decisions. Without further ado, here's this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of Balancing Death Kirk. I am Kira Mode and I'm here with Kodamarin. How's it going? And today we're going to be talking about chain bidding in adaptive finals for Keyforge. Uh, we might at some point do an episode for adaptive tournaments, but because the decks will be vastly different, we might go different, different for this one. Yeah, so the idea here is you've made it all the way, you're, you're in the final two, and now the matchups don't matter. You can't get paired up against a bad deck because you're going to be playing an adaptive round of Keyforge. You're going to play a game, you're going to flip decks, you're going to play another game, and then if you've each won one game that means a single deck has won twice you're going to bid on it and there was a lot of discussion about how to bid how to evaluate what you should bid when you should stop bidding when you should bid for the deck that you that that won and when you should be bidding for the deck that lost and we want to try to uh talk about this in this final two moment right yeah all right so we're going to lead off with some game theory uh we we don't personally think that the game theory is as interesting as the other aspects, but it needs to be discussed. So, in short, the goal with chain bidding is you want to either play the worst deck, like there's a there's a theoretical chain amount, right? So like for any two decks, like let's say that the perfect equilibrium point is six chains, right? At six chains, the decks are perfectly balanced. The idea here would be you either want to play the better deck at five chains or less, or you want to play the worst deck with your opponent having seven chains or more. Right, that, that's the goal. The goal is to gain some sort of an advantage through the chain bidding system. And per the game theory, if both players are perfectly aware of the decks and their balances and they have the same exact evaluation of these decks, the bidding is going to stop when, when it's at six chains. Yeah, if both players had the same evaluation of decks, there would be no bid. Like if me and, if me and Kodamer both played the games with the decks and we both thought that the, that the decks equal equilibrium with three, it would just be Kodamer would open bid to three and I would be like, all right, we're no, no, just no, going to no. leave it here. I would not open bid to three. I would bid to zero. Yeah, I well, know what I'm saying is and then you would bid if, to we one. Had, if we had the same information, there would be no point in bidding. The only reason that we bid is because we don't have the same information, hmm. right? I have an evaluation of where I think the deck is, and you have a different evaluation, and I don't know whether your evaluation is higher or lower than my evaluation. So we use the bidding process as a means to figure out where that is and try to gain an advantage uh, to play. That equilibrium of, of a perfect six-chain evenness of these two decks is entirely theoretical and probably subjective mm-hmm. to the players, the games that they played, the entire run of their tournament, and how much they like their own deck and how afraid they are of their opponent's deck. That six chains is entirely arbitrary, right? And the reason yeah. that we're bidding and what we're, gonna, what we're really trying to get at here is uh, how to take advantage of when I think it's six, but Kirimo thinks it's three because he's a chump. <laughs> yeah. And and so for the purpose of the game theory, we're going to run on the assumption that you have perfect knowledge of where that equilibrium is, but you don't know where your opponent stands on it. And your opponent doesn't know where you stand on it. So let's lead off with um, an example. We're just going to assume that the equilibrium is four. So a very common thing that we'll see is we'll see players just open bid. They'll be like, I'll open bid three, or I'll open bid four, or I'll open bid five, or something along those lines. I, I see a lot of open bids to six and seven because that's mm-hmm. when the second chain kind of kicks yeah. in. 
and and that's like where it gets interesting and everyone's like oh you know we both we both know that this deck is worth nine chains i'll just jump to six so they bid seven and then yeah you can have it at seven yeah now, now this is this is a very common mistake and and the reason this is a mistake is just from a game theory perspective so if i know that the equilibrium is four i still don't know where you stand right you might think it's more than four you might think it's seven chains better you might also think that it's closer you might think that it's only two chains better in which case if i open bid to three or four i'm missing the opportunity to potentially bid to only two and then you just call me at two right it's a free roll right like if i bid lower than the amount right if the chains four chains better if i bid zero one two or three chains any of those scenarios if you let me have the better deck at less than four chains I have won this engagement, right? Like like the whole bidding process, I've gained an advantage on the decks. If you raise me, like if I bid one and then you bid two, well, I haven't lost anything, right? It's a free roll. Like there, there's no downside to ever bidding low. And, and that that's, I think, like step number one here is just like very basic game theory. You have to, whatever you think the equilibrium is, every opportunity you have to be able to bid lower than the equilibrium, you have to bid that. So the Denver Vault Tour, uh, the the adaptive final was between uh, Corey Then Nathan from Team SAS, and Brooks from uh, Team Reapout, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Brooks's deck won both games, right? Mm-hmm. So they they both think that that's that that's the the deck they're bidding on, right? Yeah. And Brooks, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but he wanted Nathan's deck, right? Um, it, it appeared so. So Brooks, I mean, Brooks owns a deck, right? So he has to bid zero, like by rule. Yep. And then Nathan just one-ups him. He says, okay, I bid one. Now, we don't know where Nathan stood on the decks. I, I think he said somewhere that he thought the deck was like three or four chains better or something, but he only bid one. And then Brooks' response was pass, right? So that's a scenario there where, you know, uh, Nathan could have bid more. But by low bidding, he got a lot of value off of that. And by the way, won the game. And a lot of that had to do with um, Brooks's evaluation of the decks was different. And he said in an interview that part of the reason he thought they were that uh, Nathan's deck was better was that he knew that Nathan's deck was a two hundred and fifty dollar deck, mm-hmm. and his own deck was a thirty dollar deck. So he kind of, I think he kind of psyched himself out and maybe thought that his deck got kind of lucky to win both games. Whereas I think Nathan looked at it and he's like, yeah, this deck, this guy's deck's just better. Like, at the very least in this matchup, it's better. So I'm going to try to get his deck, if I can, for a discount. And he got it for a discount. But you only get it at that level of a discount if you're willing to low bid every single time. Like, every free roll opportunity you have, you have to take it. Right. So the the question is, how do you determine where your your equilibrium is, right? And Yeah, that... That that stuff. Hold on, but before we get to that, let's let's go over the uh, bidding above. Oh, right? because sure. That that that's where risk actually happens. Okay, so like, sure. So low bidding, I think, is pretty simple, right? If you have the ability to bid low, you have to bid low. Now going above, uh, I'm gonna use like terminology from poker. So if you don't know how pot odds work, we're gonna link to an article on how pot odds work. I'm gonna give a very very brief uh, example of how this works. So anytime you bet you're always betting for a one chain advantage, right? So like, let's say the equilibrium of a deck is three, right? The question is, okay, well, if my opponent bid three, do I want to risk going to four? Because I think the deck's only three chains better. So by going to four, I'm risking, you know, going down 
But at the same time, if my opponent bets back at me, they're going to five. So I'm risking four, they're risking five. That's always a one chain advantage in my favor. Um, so as long as they're betting at least 50%, this is pretty reasonable if I'm starting at the equilibrium. Where this becomes more dangerous is if once you get way past that. So if I think the equilibrium's three, but my opponent just bid seven, now we're not in the same scenario anymore because now I currently have a four chain advantage, right? I think the deck's better than, is three chains better. My opponent just bid seven. So I have a four chain difference there. So I could bid to eight, you know, for them to try to bid nine and get that one chain advantage, but I'm risking four. So if I'm risking four chain advantage to gain one chain advantage on balance, I need to have better than four to one odds. And four to one odds is 80%. So if I think my opponent's 80% or more, to call me or raise me if I bid more in that scenario then it's worth it but if I think my opponent's kind of like 50 50 to to raise my bet and I already have a four chain advantage you have to keep the four chain advantage because you're not getting enough value over over time on that yeah and this exact scenario happened at the origins final between Ben and JT right mm -hmm. so I casted this game and I was standing right there watching this bid happen um, and I remember it clear as day. Ben was thinking about the game, and, and they both had their equilibriums, but you could tell that they were kind of different. Uh, ben, uh, they, they bid up to three, and then JT jumps right to six. Yep. In post, we realized that Ben's, we learned that Ben's equilibrium was only five or six, right? Yep. And the JT's snap bid to six was a little jarring, so Ben responds and goes seven. And he was kind of unsure about it. And then JT snaps to eight. And then Ben thinks for a while and actually bids nine. He didn't want it at nine. He wanted. Mm -hmm. He thought he that JT was very, very likely to bid for ten. And he wanted that one extra chain of advantage. And guess yep. what? JT to bid to ten. And in post, we even learned that JT would have bid to 12 or 13. Yep. Right? But Ben doesn't know that. And, th and that's the whole point of this, right? Like, if, if Ben knew. So, so like, we, we, now, we knew after the fact. Right. That Ben put the equilibrium at about 5, and JT put the equilibrium at about 13. If Ben would have known that, he would have just said, open bid to 12. And then JT bids 13, and then that's it, right? Like, there's like if you know what your opponent's going to do, there's no game, right? It's, it's only a game because there's a disparity here. So when, when Ben was, like, when his opponent calls a um, an 8-chain bid, right? If Ben's thinking, okay, this is a 5-chain difference... My opponent just bid eight. I have a three chain advantage here. So for me to risk this three chain advantage to gain one, I need to have three to one odds. In other words, 75% or better. Uh, ben clearly thought that his opponent was 80, maybe 90% likely to raise it up to 10. But once you're at 10, you're at a different scenario. You now have a five chain advantage, which is a much bigger risk that you'd be losing. And then also, you have to figure that JT is less likely to call. He might still be more likely than less likely to call, but if that number drops from, say, 85% to 66%, that's very significant if also you now have a bigger stake. And that's why maybe Ben thought he could have gone higher, but he's like, you know what, I'm good with this. Like, I already have the five-chain advantage here. I'm calling it here. Yeah, and I, and I think a big part of that was actually the in the moment, the, the story, the interaction that they were having. There there was a tension, and, and you could feel the tension being ratcheted up, and then uh, there was a moment of hesitation when uh, JT decided to bid, uh, bid 10, and 
that's when JT said, okay, there's no longer a 75% chance that he's going to bid here. I'm calling it. I'm done. Yep. So, yeah. But, yeah, let, let, let's do go over the hard part of this. Because I, I think the game theory, you go through pretty quick. Um, it's not super complex. The hard part is you need to make sure you have the right, right equilibrium. You don't want to catch yourself in the spot where you're JT. You think your deck's 13 chains better. Your opponent knows better, and it's actually, like, 5. And then they just, you know, run a train on you in terms of the bid, and you lose the game before... Because, like, that game was lost before the game even started because he was just at way too much of a disadvantage. Um, so you don't want to catch yourself in that spot. You want to make sure the equilibrium point is about right. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you have to be in the ballpark. And, and that's where um, the skill is. That's where you have to know your own deck and know how your opponent's deck interacts with yours. So I think... So, yeah, I think the first step of this is first to understand that you're not asking yourself how many decks uh, how many chains can my deck play under that's mm-hmm. chain bound that's very different than what we're talking about here the question is actually how many chains different are these two decks yep. and remember we're talking about an adaptive final so both of you have won almost all of your games right i think there's one loss between uh maybe two losses between the two of you throughout this whole tournament run yep. right you could have each gone 5-1 and then you win all the way through the cut both of your decks are good. They can win, and you need to see how much how different they are in the matchup, right? Yeah. Um. So the way I've personally like my rule of thumb for chains is basically I think of every chain that the better deck has as either one creature on the board or one amber, whatever I'm more afraid of. Right? If it's a racing deck, like if I if I'm if it's a racing deck, you just treat every chain as minus one amber. And if it's a control deck, you treat every chain as minus one creature. And then ask yourself, okay, if I'm playing this deck with three chains, if I have three less amber, do I feel like I'm still favored here, right? If I have seven less amber, do I feel like I'm still favored here? Um, Or if I'm a control deck and my deck needs to leverage the board, if I have three less creatures or seven less creatures, how confident do I feel in my deck's ability to withstand that? Now, maybe it's not a big deal. Right, maybe your deck can you know has mechanisms in it to recover, or maybe it wins by so much that that disadvantage doesn't matter. But you have to figure out where that is. Like, what's the breaking point where the favor is now towards the deck that lost? Right. First off, I think I think card draw is a little bit overrated, but it's a little stronger under chains. Um, I think that house cheating is a lot stronger under chains than card mm-hmm. draw in general um, because it lets you play these more card turns. You know, those yeah. archive effects are now I just played a four card turn, I get to draw four cards. Because under chains, remember that your bad turns aren't a whole lot worse. A 2 2 2 hand still looks like a 2 2 1 hand. If you're rolling in your game, then the chains didn't really hurt you. Where the chains mm-hmm. really hurt you is when you start. Uh, when you don't have the ability to play a three, four, five card turn, yep. right? Your high rolls aren't going to be there, and if your deck can win on the low rolls, then that's probably a great thing, right? Especially yeah. when considering these chains. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it really depends on on that more than anything else. So there are times where we've seen decks that are chained still roll pretty well. Like like you can get lucky. Like you can have a five card hand every turn and still manage to play three or four cards a turn. Like that happens. But more often than not, it's going to be a lot of two and three card hands. And meanwhile, your opponent who has six cards a turn, they're ripping a lot of four and five card hands. And that's where that advantage really starts to mount itself. Um, So as far as the chains go, 
I wouldn't I wouldn't look at like the card draw too much. I would just try to think about it as like, okay, if I'm at five chains, that's five less amber for a racing deck or five less creatures. How do I respond to that? Like, so for the amber situation, maybe what you do is you say, okay, I need to have some sort of big amber control play, right? Like, so if I'm playing a racing deck, but I have, say, a too much to protect in the racing deck, maybe as I just say, you know what, if I can just get that too much to protect, my opponent can build a little bit of an advantage on me, but I can neutralize it. And then I can push forward with superior amber once these chains are gone. In the control deck, maybe you say, okay, you know what, they're going to have a little bit of a creature advantage, but I have a board wipe, reset the game, and then I can build my board up. Right. So you, you could have those types of reset mechanics, um, but more often than not, you actually want to just evaluate whether or not your deck can withstand the difference um, without that. Yeah, so once you kind of think about that whole difference of chains... Uh, reducing the amount of creatures you have, the amount of amber you get. Uh, the next place I look is the actual strengths and weaknesses of your own deck and your mm -hmm. opponent's deck, right? Um, what things can you exploit? And this almost, this kind of dips into the player skill. And I say, oh, yeah. I think I'm a, I'm a good enough player to play their deck against mine. I know my deck's weaknesses. I know that, uh, personally, I have a deck that relies on three Mars Needs Amber, right? Yep. So if I was playing that in a reversal tournament, I would be really comfortable giving that away and just never putting damage on my creatures because I'm not going to let that card trigger because I know how important it is. And my opponent might not catch that. They might not catch either the way I'm playing around it or uh, how, how important that was in the chain evaluation when I set the, my own equilibrium. Yeah, I think, I think the fundamental mistake that players make when they chain bid is they think, okay, how many chains can my deck withstand and still be effective or how many chains does my deck need to be able to beat my opponent's deck uh the way i would personally look at it is i would say okay if i'm playing my opponent's deck right against my own deck what's my game plan like how would i play their deck with no chains like like what, what would my game plan be you just and did if, that game too exactly right now you've so you've now seen their archon card you've now played a game you've played a million games with your own deck so you say okay if i if i play their deck again what's my game plan and if my deck is not favored right if this is the deck that lost like if my opponent's deck lost back to back it's like okay if i'm not favored how many chains would i realistically need to prop this deck up to the point where i would feel confident using this deck to smoke my deck with my opponent playing it or similarly if my opponent's deck is favored if i say okay i know what my opponent's game plan is to beat my deck um how much of a hindrance can I take then? Because then, then you don't overrate as much. Yeah, I think I, I think it's kind of tricky because, you know, the perception is is that the, the better deck just won twice, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that the easiest place to get tripped up on this is if your deck won twice. Because what happens, yeah. what, what that means is your deck just, in your hands, ran at least 5-1, and one, maybe 6-0, and oh, and then in day two ran, you know, 5-0 and oh again. Right, so you have yep. maybe ten wins with your deck, and then it just won twice, and then you got beaten by it. You know how this deck wins; it feels great, and you've probably been high rolling. And you need to understand where where that bias is. You know, you have to understand that your deck probably just high rolled for at least four, five, six, seven of those ten wins throughout the tournament, and that may not happen every time. Yeah, players are really bad at understanding their own luck. Again, players are really good at understanding when they got unlucky. 
but players are really bad at like like whatever players high roll they just assume that their deck had a normal roll that that's how that's the natural psychology of players and that's why we would say when you're evaluating which of these decks is stronger don't look at it from the perspective of your own deck because you're going to overrate way too hard you want to evaluate from the perspective of the other deck like if you're playing the other deck how would you approach this situation because then at that point you're going to have a somewhat more it's still going to be a little overrated but it's not going to be as skewed as it would be if you're looking at it from your own deck's lens um but but this also comes to to another point which is like i would then look to juice the bids up if we're bidding on my opponent's deck so <laughs> play you know, into that psychology yeah so he, here's the deal right like when you're low bidding for decks right that's a free roll so then the question is okay if i'm gonna bid more chains right so if i think the equilibrium's four if i'm bidding five six seven eight chains i'm only doing that if i think that you're going to call a lot or, or sorry raise so then it's like all right well how do i know if this is a good decision or bad decision and i would just look at it and say if you're bidding on your opponent's deck your opponent is very likely to overrate their own deck they are very likely to be in a situation like jt was where he'd won every single game he'd played that tournament just won back-to-back games in the finals and said i'm not losing this deck and he was willing to go up to 13 chains which is asinine but at the same time if you are the other player you can juice up the bids a little bit you have a little bit more leeway to try to get them to bid more chains but you won't get that on your own deck as much right so the ultimate point of what we're trying to get at is that a lot of these decks are not 10 chains different right mm-hmm. they're all good decks they both run won this whole tournament so far and this is really the last game that that these two decks get to play against each other and you're just trying to find out how different from each other they are but the last point I want to touch on, and Kiermode and I disagree on this a little bit, is when is 10 chains appropriate? 10 is like my number for a lot, because it mm-hmm. is a lot. It, 10 chains, 9 chains are, is really where you can play the entire game under chains and it'll be over. Where, you're, where you actually are slowed down. You're not just kind of hitting a speed bump, you're missing two cards and you're just dumping cards to get efficiency instead of playing them for value. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when your opponent can really run away, run away with the game. And the question is, is that ever warranted? I think there is a time and a place for it. D- Kiermo uh, doesn't. I, I think it's very rare. So the only time that I would ever bid in the neighborhood of 10 chains um, would be if I felt like the deck that won versus the deck that lost is borderline unwinnable on no chains. So, like, and that happens, right? So a perfect example of this is my opponent's playing a Heart of the Forest deck and I have no artifact control, right? That's a scenario where the moment that they draw Heart of the Forest, you lose the game. So you might want to bid a lot more chains. But, like, if, like, let's say my opponent was playing, like, a pre-nerf lands deck, that's not unwinnable, even if you don't have artifact control. Because they have to get the seed and then they have to get all the pieces like that takes time it's not like they just drop the card you lose so that that's where i would look at it and just say okay is this winnable like if i'm playing the deck that lost twice is can can i realistically win with no chains basically where the chains aren't just a handicap and they are actually actively stopping that deck from winning yeah That, that that's really the only scenario because i mean you think about it another way to think about it is the games only last like 10 turns yeah, for the like most part. Top level games, especially with one racing deck, yeah, eight, so, nine turns is like a long game. 
So that at that point, you're like, okay, am I going to be playing the, literally the entire game under chains? You know, and some of those are two chains. Mm-hmm. So that's rough. Like, like, and then also here's the, here's the other aspect too. So if my opponent won the game on like three chains or sorry three keys, and I had like one key and two amber, that's that looks like a complete blowout. But that's not as much of a blowout and, if you were to just give me ten extra amber. Yeah, and that's you well, that, that's that difference between the ten chains equals ten yeah. amber. It's not quite the same though. It's not quite equivalent. Yeah, but 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 I think it's a good measuring stick, right? Because sure. I, I think I think it's a good way to visualize just how detrimental it is to have these chains. Sure. Yes. And like so, personally, like I think especially if I were at a vault tour level event, if the decks don't directly counter each other. I'm not sure I'm ever bidding more than like four or five. If it's not like a direct counter, uh, like if it's just like, hey, that's a that's a good racing deck, and here's another good racing deck. It's like okay, like I'll just bid two or three. And and you know, you know I I used to think that I would be like okay playing at ten, but now like I've played a lot of chainbound events, I've played a lot of this, and I've done a lot of these reversal tournaments, and ten chains is too many, right? Yeah. Ten chains is just a lot of chains. And there's no way that two decks at this level are that different from each other. Yeah, and, and again, we might do an episode in the future about specifically reversal tournaments, or sorry, uh, adaptive tournaments, because you'll bring a completely different set of decks. But like specifically for like vault tours, where the decks that are making it there are all good, you know, and again, unless it's a direct counter, you, you have to assume that like each deck can win. Right, you know. Uh, one last point, though, on on this, and it's a uh, player skill. So, it's you have to figure out if you're a better player than your opponent or not. And this is not an easy thing to do because it requires self awareness, which many people do not have. But if you are a worse player than your opponent, you have more of an incentive to juice up the bids past the equilibrium. So if you say, "Hey, this deck's like four and then you decide, okay, do I risk it and try to like get up to seven or eight or nine just to make my opponent bid, a bit more? You actually probably want to take more risk in that case because they're a better player than you. If you're playing around the 50% mark, they might have like a kind of static 10% advantage on you just on their skill. Similarly, if you are the better player, you probably don't want to be rolling the dice bidding super high because you're forfeiting your natural advantage you have on your opponent. You know, it goes back to the pot odds thing, right? It's like if I'm four chains ahead and I'm trying to get them to get that one extra chain, you know, you have the pot odds. You can kind of think of skill as being like plus or minus one to two chains. Yeah, I don't, I don't really want to be presumptuous about player skill in a final, but mm-hmm. if I do perceive that my opponent just has a bananas good deck, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm a stronger player, that might, that probably will influence my bids. Yep. Right. Or vice versa. Maybe I'm maybe I'm the trash player with the great deck, right? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So yeah, that, that's all we got for this episode. Um, if you want to learn more about us, we have social medias. We have Facebook and Twitter. We are at Deathquark for either one of them. Via either one of our social medias, you can find a link to our Discord. Our Discord is the easiest way to contact either myself or Codameron. If you want more content from us, uh, Codameron has his own YouTube channel. You can look at him stream games. We also do various Vault Tour coverage via that channel. And lastly, if you want to support the channel, uh, we have our own store. 
So via our Discord in the swag section, you can find a link to our Spreadshirt store. We have shirts, sweaters, uh, mugs, backpacks, like all sorts of cool stuff that you can get. It supports the show and also like it lets you wear our colors at events, which is fun too. So yeah, check all that out. Tell your friends about the show and we'll see you next time. Thanks a bunch.